Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Denny Morrison, and I am your host for today's podcast. I am Chief Clinical Advisor for NetSmart, and I am excited to introduce our three guests today for what I think will be a terrific conversation. Peter Flick is General Manager and Vice President of Bell's AI, now part of NetSmart, and is the founder of and prior CEO of Remarkable Health. Peter has a wealth of knowledge on artificial intelligence technology and healthcare software. Mike Dordick is Senior Vice President of Post-Acute Strategy for NetSmart and President of McBee. He is a recognized expert in optimizing healthcare organizations to improve bottom lines. He has more than 25 years of experience in post-acute care, guiding executives on how to improve clinical outcomes, increase cash flow, and streamline processes. Danielle Ross is Vice President and Virtual CIO of NetSmart and is sought after as an advisor to help healthcare organizations align strategic initiatives with investments in technology. She arms clients with the necessary blend of IT and service delivery knowledge so they can focus on providing exceptional health care. Thank you all for joining me. The topic for today's episode is the technology strategies you will need to recruit, retain, and empower staff. We'll unpack some of the most pressing concerns facing human services and post-acute organizations today, the staffing shortage, and how to flip the script from the great resignation to the great transformation. The key word here is optimization and why leaders need to look at optimizing every facet of their organization from clinical functions to back office function. So let's get started. I want to bring in my guests and talk about how we can help clinicians practice at the top of their license and optimize time spent on documentation. So, Mike, talk to us a little bit about this, about this working at the top of your license business. Um, what what can people do about that? So, Danny, it's, it's a great point and something that, again, we always saw that the pandemic just kind of accelerated some of these issues. Uh, a couple of things that I, that I see, especially, in, and, and I spend most of my time in post-acute and home health and hospice, what you see happen is that, that number one, and this we saw this before, and we're seeing it a lot worse now, when we went into COVID, we all of a sudden, you have clinicians that are quarantining, you have clinicians that are, that are out sick, and we're trying to take the same number of patients. And one thing that I talk to clients about a lot is, do you really have the staff to take the patients? And would you be better off not overwhelming your field staff, your clinicians, by having too many patients to take care of? So they're being spread too thin. Next, you think about some of the reimbursement challenges related to things like telehealth. In, in, in a Medicare home health, it's not a reimbursed service. But even though it's not a reimbursed service, one of the interesting things about it, it still can take your clinicians and keep them from being overloaded. So even though you may not be able to get paid for that, now some managed care companies are starting to pay for that. Even in Medicare, you can't. If you're going to empower your clinicians to operate at a higher level because there's ways that they can see patients a little bit less and they have the same outcomes or better, you're going to really help out that clinical staff by thinking that they they can do more and they're feeling like they're actually accomplishing what they're going out to do. I mean, when you think about the clinicians that work for us, they're doing most of them went into clinical staff to see patients, especially in their homes, because they love to do it. And at one point I'll, I'll hit on that you brought up earlier is that 
people have retired early or have retired because they, through the pandemic because they just don't feel like they're having that same mission of what they're doing in their care. So anything we can do from a technology standpoint or an operational standpoint really will help that clinician. When they get home at the end of the day, they feel like they help their patients. It really is critical in that process. The other thing you see is when you think about having people operate top of their license is, and you brought this up earlier as well, the different types of discipline. So if you're talking about skilled nursing in a home, in a home setting or physical therapy, what are you doing to think about getting occupational therapy? What is a home health aid? How can they go through and how can you spread your disciplines out and start to get so that nurse can spend more time caring for that patient, taking care of a wound, working through issues that are keep, going to keep the patient from being very hospitalized and do some things that, again, top of their license. How do you make sure that they're there? The challenge we have when, when, when these clinicians are in homes is that they don't have enough time. They're trying to document working through. So, again, use of technology. How can you make sure that they're not having to spend too much time documenting? The rest of the team will talk about some unique processes to make sure we're doing that well. Really interesting when you think about those clinicians in the home, how do they do that? So let me start back to see if the others I want to add in to, to that topic as well. On the human services side, I think it's like a similar pattern. I think there's two things. One is, can you look at how much time staff is spending on non-client facing work like documentation and compress that? so that they have more bandwidth. So that's one, and uh, it's a really good use case for technology. And then two, a way to triage services. So can you incorporate more case management, attending care, peer support into your overall mix? And then can you provide tools to arm that staff so that you can keep them within their credentials and providing services and, and just drive sort of a, a more efficient mix of providers. Yeah, I would echo kind of what you're saying, but then also speak to the group of health and human services, because we have a lot of organizations that, that I work with. They're the safety net. They are the place where they don't necessarily get to control their, their patient flow or their client flow in a lot of ways. And so one of the things that we really have to be diligent about in kind of solving these problems, Peter and, and Mike, to, you, to your standpoint, is your people who are the people that must do the clinical level work in their level of expertise, we do have to protect their time and what they're actually spending their time doing. Most of my time is spent working with organizations across the U.S. And one of the things that is a very common theme that I hear from clinicians or from psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, anybody that's in the field, specifically those working with that, in that safety net type of model, is they'll say, oh my goodness, if they would just let me do the things that I really love doing, which is seeing patients, and Denny, to your point, I think it was Peter, I don't even mind the documentation. I want to get it done, but it's all the other stuff that just doesn't make any sense to me. And so that's one of the things we also have to look at is a lot of organizations made the, the decision about five years ago to go lean when it came to their operational and admin structure. And they did so with the anticipation that, oh, I'm going to leverage technology and it's going to help me go lean. Well, the problem is, is they never actually fully leveraged that technology, but then they went lean anyway. And guess who the work that still had to be done fell to? In a lot of cases, it actually fell to those clinical staff, those higher level staff that are doing things that are really not required for their license to achieve. So 
part of as we're going through and as people are looking at this and what do we need to do, I agree wholeheartedly with Peter and, and with Mike of, of what they're saying of putting those controls in, but even simply, very simply, look at what all of the demands are that you have on your clinical staff and identify how many of the things on that list actually require the level of license and training that they have to complete them. Because I'm willing to bet organizations that go through that process, they're gonna find things that are sitting out there on the list of some of their licensed clinicians and other credentialed individuals that, uh, Peter, to your point, or Mike, to your point, that could pass to some other individuals, or in all honesty, really is an administrative task that they really do need to adopt the technology they intended to adopt, or they need to recognize that some of their administrative level staff should be able to facilitate some of those things on behalf of the clinical staff. So Denny, that's that's kind of my talking point on it because I know there's a, a full range of emotions that people have as they listen to that of, can we control our patients? What can we do? And all of that. And it's not one thing that's really going to solve all the problems. It's a multitude of looking at it in a, in a different way, depending on your org. Denny, I'll have a real quick here before you jump in back in is, if you can as an organization solve that issue, Someone else is going to solve it for you and right. take your staff. Whether we decide to do it or not, in this great resignation, we're in a much, it was at certain points there weren't jobs for everyone. Now there's not enough people. I was doing a consulting gig with a provider for, and they were telling me that their nurses, when they are interviewing nurses to work at this place, the nurses are quizzing the organization about what EHR are you using? And, and if the EHR is something they know is not good, that's a deal breaker. They're not going to take the job. I had a psychiatrist that worked for me when I was running a mental health center who came to me one day. He says, look, you know, I'm, I'm happy doing med checks, which is, you know, they were the most expensive employees I had. I'm happy doing that. He said, but I'd like to do some traditional psychotherapy with people. And I said, I'm fine with that, man. You know, if you want to do that, but I hope you don't mind being paid like a social worker to do it. And he didn't like that idea. I said, I got a hundred people that can do that. You can only do med management. I can't have you doing the stuff that somebody else can do. And that's kind of the same problem we have now. Now, I want to ask you about this on the flip side of that, because Danielle mentioned a lot of organizations aren't doing the kind of the workflow analysis where they say, look, we can take this off your shoulders. The flip side of that, do you find clinicians who are credentialed pushing back about giving other people to do things they have historically done? Do you see any pushback from the clinicians themselves? There's still some of that, but I think you saw that more pre-pandemic, when there was probably a little bit more staffing that was there. Yeah. Now, I think that most clinicians that I, that I work with in organizations are willing to let some give something up because they feel like they're not getting done what they need to do with the patients. When they're in, in the patient's home, at, at their bedside, whether it's a home care or hospice patient, they're just not having enough time. So there are some, and there are still some that are going to fight technology, not as much as I saw early in my career when we first went to laptops and PDAs and other areas that were there where the clinicians were fighting that, they want they want to pay for you. don't see that anymore, but you still see some people that are just would rather do the easier task, but not nearly as many. I would say my, my experience is similar to, to Mike's. Not as many people pushing, what I would say, pushing for the paper, um, or not really as many people saying, hey, please make sure that you, you hand me the easy caseload. A lot of people really want the complex challenge, or at least in, in, in my world, they like helping people with complex needs as well as helping individuals that maybe did not have the level of acuity needs as some of the rest of their, their caseloads so that they have a, a balance. 
So I would say usually for the pushback that I hear, Denny, it's more of a case of, you know, a psychologist I was talking with the other day, his desire to hold on for things that really didn't require his psychology um, expertise to be a part of that was more about trust. Trust in the system that the organization had put in place that from his perspective, the organization had not really invested in taking care of those things very well. That was his opinion. And then trust that the other staff actually understood the value of those things in the same way that, that he understood it. And so I do still think that we have pockets of that, but I think that it really comes down to the pushback being more as an element of trust or possibly a negative experience. So we've talked about the top of the license business, and I think that's all really important. But I think there's also this issue where organizations have not configured their technology to be easy or easier to work with. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit. Daniel, why don't you talk about that? I mean, what you know, we got people issues here, but we got people slash technology interface issues as well. I always call it the big three and you can't separate them. It's the people, the process and the technology. They go hand in hand. If you set, try to separate them, which many organizations do, um, specifically when it comes to, to EHR, um, care record products, and they'll say, oh, it's just technology. No, that's it's a people, it's a process and a technology thing. Here's what I found. A lot of organizations, number one, try to separate those three and you cannot. Effective technology, good use technology is technology that's been mapped to something that is an effective process that's been actually assigned to a specific role or individual to achieve that process. And it should be a natural progression of them into what their role is. If I'm a clinician, I have processes that I go through when I'm interacting with clients in order to do therapy services and treatment planning and all the things that go with that. So my use of technology should be mapped to what a good clinical process actually is and how I interact with that technology should be aligned to what my role actually is. And one of the things that I find, Denny, you and I have talked about this before, is many organizations spend a whole lot of time focusing on the implementation of a technology tool or a technology product or many different solutions, but they don't go to that next step and actually focus on the adoption and operationalizing the use of those tools in their day-to-day -day business and their strategic planning for how they're going to go about achieving their next initiatives. And that, that really creates a gap. And as a result of creating that gap, that's where you have staff saying, man, why am I having to click so many different places to achieve this one need? Well, it's because something got implemented, but it was implemented divorced from the process and the people, and it was implemented, but then the adoption and operationalism of it was never continued on, and I always call it that continuous process improvement. There should never be a point in an organization's life cycle where they're not looking to do it better. And so technology is a part of that as well. To me, I always talk, tell people implementation is the starting point. It's not the end point. You right. begin at the implementation and iterate and get better from there. Go ahead, Mike. And one thing I'll add here, I mean, and, and a lot of the work that we do um, in our consulting practices relate to system optimization. So we go through this process, we go through and select technology. We want to get away from where we were to be able to, again, go back to making sure the clinicians operate top of their license and, and clinician satisfaction and patient satisfaction, all the things we know are really important regardless of which level, what area in healthcare we're in. And then what happens is because of the trust issue that Daniel brought up before is we don't want to trust the system. So let's go back and change the system to match our old process. 
And we constantly have to go through and update and work with organizations to do that. The number one thing you can, if I can recommend one thing to the people on this call that are listening, make sure if you're going to buy a new platform, I'm not going to say everything's perfect. Every point, I've worked in almost every single platform across all spectrums. Every big has its, its faults, but don't take away that the advantages that that technology is going to give you to the detriment of your clinicians. Yeah, I I love that. I love it when we get that. I want that piece of paper on that screen. It's like, no, no, you don't. You don't want that at all. <laughs> probably the worst thing you could ever want. The add-on to that is is making sure that organizations might just hit on it. That when you think of technology investments, people think of what the return on investment is going to be, and they always think about efficiency, and they always think about oh, that's going to help solve this pain point or, or this pain point. Very rarely do they think I'm going to improve my client and staff experience. My technology should be a differentiator for me when it comes to how I recruit and retain staff. And when they take that mindset, the return on investment, actually, when they adopt that technology and how they use it, and as Mike was talking about, actually leveraging the tools and features that are supposed to be leveraging becomes much different than, oh, I just put a product there, now go use it. Yeah, which is, and, and I'll get you to a minute, Pete, but I wanted to add to that. Part of that ROI, especially today on this topic, is can I minimize my trouble? If you build that into the equation, that means I now have to think about how I implement this from the person's perspective, and will this make their life better, which means if I decrease my turnover by 1% or 3%, what, what does that look like in an ROI analysis? Pete, you're trying to jump in here. Yeah, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, spending a lot of time as a software product manager. At the end of the day, software should make it easier to complete tasks, and you hire software to complete jobs. And there's a, in software design, there's a whole concept called jobs to be done. And what job are you hiring this screen to do for you? And that's not how the beginning of early 2000s, the first decade of this century, the idea was let's just digitize what we have on paper and get it on computer. And that's a success. And that really was, you know, crawling before we walk. And in order to really drive optimization, you need to have a bigger view of who are we trying to accomplish? What is the persona that we are trying to make their life easier? And I think when you look at it through that lens, you do end up in a different place. And it can have really an order of magnitude difference on your organization when you implement a solution based on driving certain metrics, as opposed to I pick the solution. I have a project plan. I'm going to execute the project plan. Now we're live and kind of expect to have the same outcome. I mean, the difference can be totally different between one organization implementing a software with that kind of vision and another one implementing it with a waterfall project management approach. It can be very different results in my experience. Yeah, you know, what's interesting to me is that people don't, they don't, first, they don't think about this strategically, they think about it tactically. And I think a lot of particularly senior executives, and we're going to talk about leadership role in this in a little bit, but they, um, they think about this kind of like, okay, we're going to implement Microsoft Office. No, it's, it's not like that at all. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you don't go to Microsoft Office and then go to all your clinicians and say, okay, what can we do to optimize this for your workflow? I mean, they just roll it out. So it's, right. not, it's nothing like that. But Pete, you hit on something I wanted to follow up on. I think the, the idea of how you think about it from the clinician's persona, what does that person do? That's been kind of like your focus. And you've been pushing a lot 
on, you know, and through Bell's AI, the whole use of artificial intelligence. So let's talk a little bit about that because that's really the next iteration of what can we do to make clinicians' lives easier and what can we technically get off of their plate so that they don't have to worry about some of this minutiae. Talk to us a little bit about how AI can be used to help clinicians. Yeah, well, one example, I had spent several years on the EHR side working with agencies and clients, and a couple things became clear to me. One, that on average, the providers, the clinicians were spending about two days a week on you know non-client work, documentation. And I, I've yet to meet folks that say they got into it because they love the documentation. It is a, a number one reason for burnout. But you know, I was asking myself the question, if I had a magic wand, what would make the biggest impact to the industry? And I came back to, there's a massive shortage of providers and there's a supply and demand imbalance and it's not getting better. It's actually, you know, the numbers of retirements and, and how many people are coming in versus leaving is, is actually a net negative number. And so the, the pool is shrinking and the demand is increasing. And so we really zeroed in on a persona, which was the, the actual providers themselves. And how can we help them spend more time with their clients and amplify really what they're able to do? Because we can't expect that there's a bunch of people coming out of universities that are just going to save the day and we're going to be able to fill new hires very easily. And as we zeroed in on that persona, we started to really narrow in on a specific problem. We wanted to solve one thing, which was we wanted to cut those two days down to one day. And, and then we started to pull on that thread and say, okay, we want to build some, we want to build a tool that can cut this time in half. So let's study exactly how they're doing it. And we learned that on average, it's about 3.3 days from when a session occurs to when a note is signed. And folks are doing their notes in batches. And so they're trying to remember from two days ago what they actually did when they have to get their notes in. And then through interviews, we also learned that it's really challenging for especially sort of the non-master level providers to train them on what a good note looks like for their credentials, some peer support, case management, attending care, things like that. And then how nuanced writing the note can be based on payers. And so we started with a problem. We were very clear on the problem. And then we found technology to help us achieve that problem, as opposed to saying, we want to use AI for the sake of AI. It turned out that AI and, and specifically natural language processing was a really good use case for this. And we ended up building a product that is sort of like a Grammarly for writing progress notes. And it can be customized and configured by the credential level, by the payer, by the program or the service. And then we built some speed tools into that as well. To, you know, we, we had a this aha that two minutes right after a session are the most valuable time to make it really easy for a provider to give a quick download of what they saw, what they wanted to focus on next time, what were the key points. And then have them be able to come back to that when they're ready to write the note. And so they're not starting from a blank screen in a day or two when they're ready to catch up on their notes. And so taking all those things together, it really actually, it was interesting to look at your slide where you talked about workflow, optimization, system, and personnel. And I think good product is the overall user experience or extreme usability we talk about at NetSmart. 
and being able to stitch what that person cares about, how they like to do their work, where they like to do it in the field, in the office. And then what is the workflow? What are the people like? And then what is the technology solution that makes sense for that situation? And then being able to do it with feedback loops with clients was really powerful. And what we were able to see is we were able to basically give back on average five hours a week. We're trying to get to eight and I think we'll get there pretty soon, but that's almost a day with a product that is really designed for that specific workflow. And and that was our experience using AI and and it's been pretty powerful. I'd say it's pretty impressive. I mean, all of healthcare is moving towards uh, natural language processing, well, actually for AI and machine learning. And just for our clinician friends, you will hear the term NLP, which is in this context is natural language processing, but the clinicians that are listening to this know that that also stands for uh, neuro linguistic programming. Those are two different things. They're not related yeah. at all. So just make yes. sure you get your NLP straight. But you know what's interesting to me is like when we look at other aspects of healthcare, um, medical healthcare, there, where AI is being used is a lot in radiology, a lot in labs, and it's because those are they're focusing on the image recognition capabilities in AI. And I think, you know, for our industry, the written and spoken word is the equivalent of images for radiologists. That's why natural language processing is such a good match, I think, for our industry, because we are text heavy. That's kind of like the the core functionality of what we do in terms of workflows. So I love two things that you said. One, you guys didn't try to boil the ocean, picked a particular use case. I love that as a strategy in everything. And two, that you're applying this ability to use where the clinician is about how can I take the textural data that I have to generate and throw some technology at it that will help me do my job better. The important thing to point out is the technology is not doing the clinical work for the individual. It really is helping to improve the quality and get their thoughts on paper very quickly. And what we've heard is you know, some of the benefits have been significant benefits on sort of the non-master level staff, getting them up to speed on what a good note looks like. One of our CEOs said it typically would take them six weeks to get someone billing at full utilization, and, and now they could do it in three. And then the other piece was that we heard that uh, supervisors and master level clinicians were saying they were actually getting to spend more time talking to their supervisor about strategies to how to maybe intervene with a client that's maybe not making the progress that they want. Now that they're not spending time talking about, are the notes in on time? Hey, there's an issue with this. No, you got to update it. Here's the spelling or, or grammar or, hey, you know, this verb use could, could be misconstrued by a payer. And so it's actually allowing them to be more strategic, which is which most of them, that's what they want to do. They want to be creative and change people's lives. To do what only they can do. I mean, this is another yeah. example. It just happens to be a technological spin on it. Mike, are we seeing any AI applications in the uh, LTC home health market? You started to see some, and Peter and I have talked some about how what's being rolled out in Bells, how it would really apply into in home health and hospice. We've seen some of it around, you've seen some areas around coding, you've seen some areas around just workflow, and it's just starting to, to move into the space. So it's not, and I haven't seen anybody really heavily doing it, but you are seeing there's a lot of conversation around it, and a lot of things are going to take believe start moving soon. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a question that I suspect 
a lot of our viewers might have in the back of their mind and might even say. So I just ask you, Pete, do you think AI is going to take jobs away from clinicians? No. No, I think it's going to empower staff that maybe would have struggled with the note writing. I mean, when you take a first job as a case manager and it's the first time you have to write everything you do, that's a hurdle. And there's a big problem with a failure to launch of new groups of people that take jobs. So I think it's going to help bring people into the space that may have been intimidated by the documentation aspect. And it's going to empower and energize the clinicians to be able to focus on what they're doing. I mean, our vision is we want them to feel like rock stars that just show up at the concert and play their instruments and they don't have to deal with the AV equipment or where to park or anything like that. And anything we can do to help with that vision. And so I think it's going to amplify what they can do and make them uh, enjoy what they're doing better. So AI is a roadie. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, Denny, how many times have you heard somebody say this to you as, as you and I have traveled or, or just, she is a great clinician, but the documentation is just really struggling. I used to make a statement to say, hey, you can't be a great clinician if you can't also document well because that's the client's record and all that. I've rephrased that to say, you know what? You actually can be a great clinician, assuming your organization has invested in tools to help you also be a great documenter. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, it's two sides of your brain. It's a right and left brain experience when you're in a session interacting with someone versus recalling what you did in a way that the payer is going to deem acceptable. I've heard that same commentary. I have an excellent, or now that now they have the confidence to do their job. You know, it's a level the playing field for, for some folks. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it really gets bad when you got you got clinicians having that conversation and they're saying, I'm going to have to fire this person because they're not, this is a phenomenal clinician. I can't get them to do their notes. So, you know, we don't want to do that. But Mike, go ahead. Yeah, so I was going to say, I, mean, I don't, in five years from now, without it, the clinicians won't be able to do their jobs because they won't be able to take care of the patients. I mean, so it's, I mean, you think about that scenario, it may be an obvious statement, but I make it just because there, we, we see too many patients that can't be cared for with, it, again, you have something like COVID happen in the pandemic where you had the quarantine clinicians. It was already too, too little, too few to begin with. Everything else happening, we won't be able to operate without it in a certain amount mm-hmm. of time. Yeah, there's, there's a stat I've got in a slide. And two things is the half life of knowledge in the behavioral health industry is like 11 years or something like that. So in 11 years, half of what we know will be obsolete. And the other is that the human mind cannot consume all the information about a patient, whether behavioral health or the tsunami of information that we're getting. We're not going to be able to stay on top of the literature about what works and what doesn't work. And so we're going to have to have tools like this that can help us do the job better. But I want to back up a little bit. I want to talk a little bit back again about technology optimization and adoption. And Ben, you know, you've talked a little bit about this, but I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the most common mistakes that organizations make that lead them down the wrong path regarding optimization and technology? Well, the first one is that they assume that the technology only belongs to IT. So that's the the number one uh, challenge that that I have to encounter from an organizational culture and honestly and truly in in very hard conversations with executives in their organization is where they've turned ownership of technology products that are used to facilitate service delivery and used to help with our, to do their RCM practices, all that. They turned it over as just being something that's owned by their IT division. 
And that's a bad idea <laughs> because just like clinicians have their expertise, IT uh, individuals have their expertise. And one of them may be supporting an EHR, but one of them is not deciding a workflow that's best for a patient who is coming in for an intake and what they need to collect clearly and what I need to see. IT may help facilitate what needs to happen in that job view that Peter was talking about. That's where they come in. So that's the number one mistake is that they disown it from a standpoint of where it belongs, which is at a strategic seat at the table um, because it crosses all of their organizational structure from service delivery to RCM to data and outcomes to what they need for business decisions. So don't isolate it in IT. That is a, a mistake, not that your IT doesn't play a good part in it. So that's number one. Number two, honestly and truly, is creating, when we talk about optimization, it truly is that operationalizing the tools that you've actually used. How am I adopting this into my day-to-day? -day? And some of that is, is cultural, and we talk about all the time, if, hey, part of the role of an executive in an organization, when you've made an investment in a technology tool, specifically one that branches and stretches across all of the different operations and service delivery of your organization, is fostering a culture that says we're going to adopt this tool that is a part of who we are. It becomes a part of you know, what we see in our model of delivery, not just something that's a standalone. But the other piece of it that I talk about a lot, Denny, is a lot of people believe, and we talked about it very early, that the implementation is the done phase. I'm going to start using this tool, and I'm immediately going to have all of the return on investment from using this tool. And while there are some good wins that people can get at the point of implementation, part of when I use the term operationalizing the use of the tool means also pulling it into your continuous process improvement. You're constantly looking at what are we doing? How are we doing it? Why are we doing it? And what is my technology tool coming out with that might change our minds on how we're doing things? The number of organizations that I interact with that they haven't even upgraded their EHR system in, in years, meaning their actual tool that they're currently invested in now, that they're, they're paying for, that they've implemented, they have not even upgraded to the latest and greatest a version of that technology. And as a result of that, they don't have access to some of the feature functions and they wonder why they're hearing other clients or other organizations use the product and say they're having great success, but for some reason, they're not having the great success. And so part of that is a reason is they're not staying to where when they operationalize the use specifically of the EHR system, when they operationalize the use, it becomes part of their overall process improvement strategy as an organization. And it's a part of a continuous thing. It's never done. And so that's really and truly to me, when you're thinking about what are the mistakes people made, don't let IT be the sole owner. Number two, make sure you have leadership uh, that's actually facilitating a culture. And number three, adopt it into your operations as a continuous process improvement. You are not done at the point of implementation. Mike and Pete, anything to add to that in terms of what your experience is seeing? Uh, Danielle hit it really well. I mean, we say it, you can't say it enough. It's a constant process and you constantly have to make sure that you're using, I can't tell you how many times I get a call from someone saying they're on this care record and, and it doesn't work and everybody else works and you go in and you look and it's something that just, they didn't update it. I had a, had a guy sit in another seat when I was a CEO, not surprised I had a reputation of being kind of a technophile so people would come to me with questions. 
I had a guy come up to me. He says, my IT guy is asking me to get another server. He says, we bought a server five years ago. What do we need another one for? <laughs> Not, this ain't good. <laughs> so the, the um, optimization issue to me is those things that you talked about, Daniel, are really critical. One of the often overlooked challenges is leadership. And you touched on it. I want to drill down on that a little bit more because I, you and I have had this conversation many times about how leadership is one of the things that they may be very engaged in terms of the picking an EHR, and then they step back and say, okay, it's an IT play, give it to the IT guys. What do you guys, all of the three of you, what do you see? And let's, I'll start with Danielle, but I want to hear from all of you on the kind of the critical role of leadership in technology. What can leaders do differently that they aren't doing right now? Sure. So a couple of things I hit on it before is, is fostering the culture. So to where technology is embraced, it's something that we not only invest in and say, oh, we have technology, we actually adopt it, use it, and we actually advertise it as a differentiator for us. I Meaning we're, we're proud of what we're doing and that's creating a culture. I always say it has to go a further step down that the use of the technology is an expectation, meaning it becomes part of the, the core job descriptions with staff of the interaction with the tools to complete their job. Um, it becomes part of the training of the staff, not just, hey, here's our, our EHR tool, but it's, hey, as, a, as, as Peter was talking about, as a new case manager, when you get ready to do this task, this is how this task or this job is actually completed. And here's why we complete it that way, because here's the downward stream of where that data that you're putting in that system or that job that you're completing is going to go to help somebody know what we need to do for this client. That's part of culture. And the only way you have to do that is that you have to have executive leadership sponsoring it. It does not happen by an IT director. You might have a great astute CTO, but usually they are not the people who are going to have the most clout with clinicians, as I call it. Um, so it needs to be a part of the executive leadership for them to say, you know what, we're championing this, that this is not a side project for us. We actually sponsor our technology. We look at how well we're adopting technology as a key indicator of our performance as an organization. Um, and we also, obviously, the, the big one is we use the data that that technology is producing for us, and we make sure that it's known that we are using the data. So if you're thinking about your, your C-suite level that may be listening to this, that, that's really the encouragement is that you are facilitating and fostering the culture that everyone's following, but you have to sponsor this. You have to sponsor the adoption of it all the way through your organization. And those are some key ways of, of doing it. You need to make sure that it's a part of who you are, not just a side thing that happens that you say, yes, we have an EHR. Yeah, I think, you, Daniel, you know the story, but when I was a CEO, we were an early adopter of EHR, went live around 1996, 97. And so, and like a lot of you guys, you know, we built a sandbox for people to get trained on it, you know, that would take data and take patients so you didn't muck things up. And then we had a competency exam you had to pass to get your login for the real EHR. Well, we made passing that exam a condition of employment. If you couldn't pass the exam, you didn't have a job. And I got a lot of pushback from that. And I said, what is the alternative? Am I going to let people not use the EHR? I mean, that this is the way we do business now. You have to do that. And I I'm amazed at chief executives that just, they don't get that. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll make a workaround or, you know, he's a great clinician. It doesn't matter. So, I, Pete, you were going to step in and speak to this. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. I totally agree with what Danielle said. A lot of times these technology projects, they bubble up from staff that are frustrated. And what I've seen often is it gets the CEO and the CEO would say, listen, all right, fine. We'll go spend money on some technology. I'm going to write the check and then I I don't want to hear about it again. You know, I've, I've seen that movie play out. And I think that's just a complete missed opportunity because what the CEO or the executive team can bring is they have a strategic view of the whole field and they can connect the dots in ways that, you know, staff in certain silos can't. So it's great to bubble up and to be in tune with what staff need. But I think it's really important for the executive team to engage and lean in and add a layer of success criteria of the project and really define what what would make this project a wild success besides staff being happy and not voicing frustration. Not whining anymore. (laughs) Yeah, like, okay, well, if we can improve our cash flow, if we can improve our reimbursement rate, if we can improve our access to care, if we can drive better outcomes to negotiate better rates with payers. I mean, there's really a long list of things that they could do. And there's probably like 10 to 20, but pick five that are really critical and talk to the team about why these five are so critical to the executive team and to the board. And then I think that can find its way into how you implement the project and how you measure success. And the folks that are actually in charge of implementing it, I think should be measured not only on, did I complete the project plan, which I think is what happens 98% of the time, but what does utilization look like? What does adoption look like? What are the five key metrics that we're going to look at every week to see, is this product that we're using driving results? I think that was what made our Bell's product super successful is we were focused on session time. We were focused on reimbursement. We were focused on increasing average revenue per provider. And we look at those every week and we made different prioritization decisions for the product than we otherwise would have. It's so easy in the course of our work for someone to say, I need the software to do this, this, and this, because this is how we operate. But that is often not connected to a key metric or an outcome. And so, so much time is, okay, okay, that's what you want. Okay, we'll do that. But are we really driving a key metric? And like, what is the, what is the key metric? You know, there's probably only a few that we really want to drive and optimize. And you will end up in a different spot with the same product. Two organizations can end up in a different spot with the same product. And the last thing I'll say is, I think if you do it right, the way I look at the technology spends, it can be the equivalent of one to five or a a team of one to 10. Like If you get the technology right, it could be your most loyal employee that is super reliable, that can do the work of 40 people if you get it right. And they're not going to resign. They're not going to let you down. They don't get sick. And, and that's a great way to think about it that I think um, that's a different framework than I think a lot of technology decisions are made. And that's how I look at it. I love that. Mike, how about you in your experience? So, so Danielle, I want to go a little bit different path than the other panelists have. Because I mean, I think I agree with everything that they've said. I think the strongest leadership teams are open to technology even outside of the care record. I think we, we sit and a lot of leadership teams look at it and say, okay, we, we went through, we updated, we got the best technology that's out there. But uh, we talked about that, I mean, this whole thing about workforce and recruitment. The technologies that exist today around recruitment and what, forget about recruitment, what do you need to do to keep the people you have? 
And, and there's technology out there now that can look at employee behavior and say, this is abnormal and send a message to the manager saying, we think this person's the most likely one to resign. And there's a lot of other great partners out there that have other technologies that will help you with clinician satisfaction, with patient satisfaction that are not the EHR that may be a bolt-on. And with everything that's happening in the world right now, we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to look at it. Now, some of you may talk to third companies that may not have what you need, but if you're not talking to them, you have no idea what's out there and you, you can't deliver what you need to for your organization. So it really... It's even more than the EHR. It's everything around that's around them from the EHR that's really critical as well. Yeah, that's really a good point because I think the point of having a senior leadership team that is, embraces technology and thinks of that strategically, not tactically, is kind of like we think about it, we, I think about it in the context of EHRs, but I think you're right. A, a senior leadership team that thinks about technology as a differentiator will not limit their thinking just to EHRs. It's really the lifeblood of an organization right now. I mean, EHR is like kind of the core, but I, I agree with you. And, you. and I love the example you gave about, are there technologies, are there things that we can do to use technology to identify who's at risk of leaving this place? As part of this particular seminar, that's like, that would be technology I think people would jump on if they could. I don't know. And, you, and you've seen that, Mike? I've seen clients that develop their own, I means there's their own piece. I know there's people out there looking at that, but there's, I mean, running algorithms. I mean, and think about it as something as simple as this person doesn't take time off during the week, their schedule's pretty fixed, and all of a sudden they change their schedule. Those are the types of things you need to start thinking about differently than you did before. Very cool. Hey, we've got a couple of minutes. I want to go around the horn in which you can tell me one thing that you think kind of where we're going to be 10 years from now in terms of technology and the whole topic that we're talking about here in terms of helping the workforce uh, go forward. So Pete, why don't we start with you? Where do you think 10 years from now, you're the AI guy, where, where are we going with all this? You know, I think that 10 years from now, we will have smoothed out a lot of the frustration areas of what a provider goes through. When you think about how frustrating banking was in the in the 80s and 90s and how that has matured and been digitized in a way. And I, I think what we'll see is more digital therapeutics. We will see more technology will not only help what the provider can do in a session and right after with their agency, but I think it's also going to play a big role with how they engage with their clients in between sessions. And I think that's pretty exciting. Mike, what do you what do you think? Where do you think it's going to be 10 years from now? So I think we're going to be past a lot of this, the scenarios with the telehealth and all, I mean, all the pushback from payers and process related to that. You're going to see a lot more two-way communication where, I mean, things like wound therapy, where they're taking pictures today and sending them back and forth. I mean, you're going to see a lot more real-time care that can be given where that the clinicians that are in the homes or in this in the different settings are, are going to have a lot more tools at their disposal to be able to be real time in touch with things. I mean, you think about, and I'll use wounds as an example again, that expert that exists that's right there. It's like the phone a friend scenario that takes place, but it'll be that all that digital piece and the AI that, that Peter's team is working on, all those pieces will be there. And your, your point you made earlier about what 10 or 11 years, you forget half of what's there. A lot of the things we're talking about now will be totally out of, out of the picture because of the technology that will be in front of us. Danielle, bring us home on this one. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm going to go a little bit of a different angle from the provider uh, standpoint and the client standpoint. But I think the, the on-demand services is going to be the norm. 
and that a client is going to be able to, or an individual that needs help, I'm going to speak specifically behavioral health treatment, are those areas that they are going to literally have the option to say, I want to speak to somebody now, and our providers are going to be waiting in the wings, working across the U.S., and put themselves available to work directly with that individual in a non-formal sense of how many of our providers do it today, where they go through this major intake process and all of these different things. It's going to be an on-demand service delivery type of, of model that technology is the big key, connecting clients directly to providers. And a lot of the org structure that, that's out there, I think, is going to start to go away, meaning what I call kind of the the operation structure. I think it'll still be there, but I think it's going to diminish significantly. Yeah, I think those are great observations. I think that the use of apps and what we do now is in its infancy, and we're still kind of figuring out how to do that. You had AI to that. You had like this virtual, the ability to virtually connect with people and have, actually make that meaningful. I think all of those things are really going to change the face of healthcare in general. I mean, I, you know, Mike's example about wound care. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but sure, why not? We're doing it with dermatology. You know, you can take a picture of a, of a lesion or something and, and they'll get a read on it and give you, you know, oftentimes with an AI tool that will give you a probability statement about whether that mark on your skin is a mole or if it's something you really ought to get checked out by a dermatologist. So I agree with you. I think these are going to be interesting times. Well, look, we're out of time. You guys did a great job. It's been wonderful working with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to my, my fellow presenters today. You guys did a, an excellent job. Thank you. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.